It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I'm delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> Welcome back to the Book Ride Podcast. This is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Friday, September 24th, 2021. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, who's filling in for Rebecca this week, mm-hmm. who just came home to fall. It's a fall there, Amanda, <laughs> September 24th, there in uh, Virginia. Don't be creepy. And uh, it's feeling like fall. Fall reading, fall books, fall TV shows are coming on. It's I'm wearing fall. a sweater. Mmm. Were you at the ready, or did you have to go dig it out, or how proximal were your sweaters? Yeah, I figured. Yeah, I was just in Portland for four days for work, and when Mm -hmm. I left, it was 90 degrees. I woke up this morning, and it was 52. (laughs) And we're just like, I'm just not used to that. Everyone, all my neighbors seem fine with it. I'm just like, wait, this, stop. (laughs) So I guess morning, too, you're you're waiting. You're looking at the weather, right? When you're at home, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. here comes the weather. You see it but when you're traveling. You're not like, what's weather going to be like in four days when I get back home? And so uh, no, I went to Friday. Trader Joe's this morning and just kind of stood amongst the autumnal products. <laughs> some of it is weird. I'm not. I'm not into some of it. Like the autumnal pasta sauce. I saw. What What does that mean? I don't want to find out. I don't think. Is it pumpkin? No. Stop. I I think there is the. Again, I don't particularly like the fall generic fall spice blend that we yeah. call pumpkin, right? It's, um, pumpkin it's spice, not my right. taste, which is fine, which is fine. But it is one of those things that's funny. It's like, let's just try everything. Let's see what works. Ugh. It's like the early days of like uh, heavier than air flight. What if we made yeah. wings out of wood? Would that work? And we're going to see what <laughs> sticks here eventually here. I'm not sure what's going to... Stick around, but happy fall to everyone out there. Speaking of fall, if you haven't had a chance yet, have forgotten um, that Rebecca and I did our fall preview draft episode as a special one-off pay-what-you-will experiment. Mm. Go to bookriot.com slash fall draft, and you can down... A couple, a couple of things to know about. It's a platform called Gumroad, and you can pay nothing if you're not feeling like you want to pay anything, can't afford it, it's not whatever... Or you can pay what you think it's worth, or maybe more than it's worth. That's okay, too. We're not going to tell anyone if you pay more than you think it's worth. That's totally fine. Yeah, we're going to tell each other. Um, And there's two things you can do in Gumroad. You can stream it in Gumroad, either as an app on your phone or as the uh, website on your computer, or you can download the MP3 and do other things with that. One of the things we've gotten feedback about is people would like to just play it in their podcatcher. And I think once we're, we're fully done with the experiment, we'll talk about what we've learned, but there's not a super easy way to do that for all podcast players. Um, some podcast players allow you to drop in an MP3, some don't. Um, but this is the simplest way to get it out there and make it generically available. Um, so that's bookriot.com slash fall draft. We're still taking votes. This is open um, and available through Thanksgiving. We will be counting votes till then. So there's no reason not to go get it. I'm going to make a mention of a couple of draft-related things we get into the show today about mm-hmm. Sally Rooney and the National Book Award long list and how poor of a job Rebecca and I did picking books. I actually ended up getting <laughs> placed on the NBA long list for fiction, but so it goes. Anyway, uh, bookriot.com slash falldraft, and there's a link in the show notes to this episode, which you can find at bookriot.com slash listen if you'd like to go about it that way. We're going to do a fall, uh, fall break. We're going to do a sponsor break, and then we'll come back and do a little bit of follow-up and get into the news of the week. It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. First follow-up, Rebecca and I a few weeks ago were 
surprised to see pop-up shops with Sally Rooney merch in the UK, midnight mm. openings of bookstores and anticipation of the new Sally Rooney book. And we're like, wow, that must be a really big deal. Either they're wrong or we're wrong. And I think both of those turned out to be right. Um, yeah. In the UK, Sally Rooney's um, new book, uh, what's the name? I'm, I'm blanking on it. I didn't it's write not, it down. I don't know. <laughs> I Beautiful don't like people, that. big word, big world, something like that. I can't remember. It's the Sally Rooney book. You can Google it. That's what mm-hmm. that thing is for. It, first week sales in the UK were 46,000 copies. And I know it's hard because publishing doesn't work this way unless you have a book scan account or uh, subscribe to Publishers Weekly. Lucky for you, I do look <laughs> at Publishers Weekly, so I have a good sense of it, though not in the UK. 46000 for a fiction title in the U.S. is a very good, that's a very, very good uh, opening week, but not the kind of thing you're like, oh, that means we should have opened bookstores at midnight. But mm-hmm. here's the thing, a lot fewer people in the U.K. So... In the U.S., Sally Rooney's debut, or debut, first week sales for her new book were 40,000, so fewer than the U.K., even though the U.S. has like six times as many people. So if you extrapolate mm-hmm. that out, the equivalent kind of debut here would be like a 250 to 300,000 first week sales, which for commercial fiction slash literary fiction is an enormous number. I mean, that, that, that would be the kind of thing where you'd have some bookstores thinking about staying open late so people could come get it there. I can't mm-hmm. think of a title of late that sold that many copies week one. I don't know what author of Sally Rooney's Stripe, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Man, that commercial slash literary that, 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 that bridges over. I can't think of anyone that could do that. So in the U.S., she's not as big of a deal. So we were kind of right yeah. to be like, wait, that's radar seems wrong. But in the U.K., it is a much, much, much bigger deal. I was trying to think of somebody who was a crossover for both audiences who would yeah. maybe have an equal splash. I couldn't think of anyone except Neil Gaiman and maybe Zadie a Smith. A new Neil Gaiman novel. I think that's a really good idea. Zadie wouldn't move a quarter million units for a new novel. No, and she wouldn't have a midnight too. opening either. No, I don't think so. Gillian Flynn came to mind, and it's only because we're going to talk about her in a little <laughs> bit later. Like is her, she, her, she... her first big novel since Gone Girl. I don't, I don't think it would do it though, Amanda. I agree with you. I, I can't. No, I don't know that she's one. as popular in the UK as she is no, here. No, no. Um, I think it would have to know, be Gaiman. There is no. That space is a little empty uh, mm-hmm. for us. I mean, it would have been Terry Pratchett, or bad. right? But that's not possible anymore. <sighs> no, I don't think so. Well. Again, this is like saying, you know, if an asteroid hits the Earth, everything will get destroyed. Well, yeah, but that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. When the Game of Thrones book comes out, no, mm. it will sell a quarter million copies. Are we saying when? We're not saying if? Oh, no, I'm saying I'm saying if. Okay. But I'm saying if it should, that one yeah. would sell that many yeah, yeah, copies. Yeah. It would yeah, sell a quarter. And people would, would be open at midnight. That would um, be an event. Yeah. If there were... You know, even something like the, the Testaments, the, the Atwood sequel, long-awaited TV show out, it didn't do a quarter million units in week one. I think it did 80 or 100 or something like that. Still a very good number, but it didn't have that kind of pent-up uh, demand. Apparently, the book is middling on the whole, people are saying. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm going to get around to the Sally Rooney corpus. I, I have read zero words or seen zero frames of adaptation of Sally Rooney, but I'm going to get around to it at some point. Do you have any? Do you have any mental model of the Rooney verse? I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, I've read yeah. um, Normal People, and it was fine, fine for me. I mean, it's just not to my taste. Like I'm, I'm no. very much in the period of my reading life where angsty young people are boring, no matter who the author mm-hmm. is or what. I've like we've all experienced this angst. We've all did whatever. I'm just not. I don't care. I don't care if that's just it. No, yeah, every generation that. needs their own angsty young people trying to figure out things but doesn't mean you have to read all of them if you're out of if you're outside of that zone um you know you go to prom when at the right time but to go to prom a a bunch after that is kind of weird and maybe beside the point uh so that was that was pretty interesting but i does i don't i do think it speaks to the singularity of rooney but also how there's not really space for that kind of blockbuster Twenty-eight ninety-nine hardback, Instagrammable cover, commercial slash literary fiction. That space is kind of gone right now, and probably for the better. I, that that kind of sales does suggest a certain 
homogeny of the cult, like a kind of focus on one title uh, mm-hmm. for a given week, which I think ultimately, as we've done this site for God, almost 10 years now, it's cool that there is no center to some degree, because you can find all kinds of stuff, the diversity in, in, in both the ways that's being used in the public, but also just in terms of genre and form and price point and format and when you can read it has meant that the, it's a uh, it's a federation <laughs> of interest rather than um, a focused one. So anyway, if you were excited to hear about that kind of stuff, uh, welcome to the Book Riot podcast where we talk about <laughs> the UK sales of books we haven't read. Um, <laughs> let's see, what else What else did I want to do for follow-up? I, I guess while we're on uh, Gillian Flynn, mm. so there's a couple of stories that are related here about... Hmm. I don't even know what you would call this. So one is about Sarah Grant launching her own publishing thing, more like a own publishing house, like a house. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then Gillian Flynn and Lena Waite starting or launching an imprint with a new independent publisher. So I don't know what to do with that either. The other thing that came across my desk this week that didn't that didn't include here that is a you know bullet point subsection C dash one one to this is um, Zibby Owens, who's a podcaster of some clout within a certain circle is also getting her own imprint. <laughs> within a certain and, circle. <laughs> well, it is true. These are all just yeah, all yeah. certain circles. That's all oh, that yeah. it is. Um, and I think these three together, you know, three dots make a line. And the line here, I think, is interesting. What is the line, Amanda, that you're seeing if we, if we put these together and try to connect them uh, with a ruler, like in Hunt for an October, <laughs> to see that they're actually headed towards Thor's twins uh, to see where they're um, going to get out of the personality like influencerness is yeah the the connect i think if you take zibby out the other two there's like a level of kind of irritation with traditional publishing and how publishing has treated these particular authors like gillian flynn seems unsatisfied with her experience in publishing and so does sarah grant like sarah grant's a little bit saucier about it but both of them very saucy let's come back to that in a minute but yeah okay um but if you exclude the Zibby thing, these other two seem to be like, these are big names and they, mm-hmm. and even they are not happy with how publishing yeah. is being run right now. So that, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. To take them piece by piece, I guess, um, in ascending layers of sauciness show title, um, <laughs> the, the Lena and Gillian joint with Zando mm-hmm. feels like an extension evolution of, the ce- celebrant, I, I yeah. tried to make a portmanteau, but it didn't happen. The celebrity imprint of the Sarah Jessica Parkers, the Phoebe mm-hmm. Robinsons, the Anthony Bourdains, but extending it to sort of make explicit that they're not just sitting in a room picking books. Mm-hmm. They're going to be as part of a team that selects books, but then they're going to be part of the promotion after the book is selected in pre-production. Presumably, there'll be some pre-publication hype. TikToking, talking about on podcasts or Substacks or whatever platforms people have to say, here's a book that I am handpicking from the get-go to be something mm-hmm. that uh, you know I think people should care about. And it's not just that people care about that book; they people people care that I care about that book. In a lot of ways, it's the glow up of the celebrity book club phenomenon we're seeing, where you can read Malala's book pick or Steph Curry's mm-hmm. book pick or Roxanne's book pick or you know Reed Hoffman's book pick every week, but instead of sort of picking from what's at the grocery store, they're like, what if I had my own farm and we could decide mm-hmm. what, what to bring to market? And well, I think I that's think it interesting. matters that both of these are authors and not yes, like Reese Witherspoon, who doesn't mm-hmm. probably have, I mean, she probably does now, but when she started, Hello Sunshine might have not have had as much of a familiarity with what that the process of making a book is like and maybe didn't care. Like, who cares yeah. what the editorial process is like or what the marketing budgets are like or whatever. But Gillian Flynn and Sarah Grant care because it affects them personally. And so they've right. seen how, you know, if your last book didn't sell as well, how much your marketing budget is knocked down by X percent the next mm-hmm. go around and all of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And that's the sort of thing. It's like the very granular parts of ushering a book through that seemed to annoy the two of them the most <laughs> yeah let's let's just we do need i want to spend more time on the grand because i think that's actually more interesting what she, yeah. she actually what she's talking about i think the other thing to use the reese and the oprahs of the world 
is that frankly, even having a successful imprint is small potatoes compared to selling Hello Sunshine for $900 million right. or the O Network or Oprah Magazine. So there's a certain level of like diminishing returns. Uh, it's a lot of picking up quarters when you mm. get paid in hundies um, to some degrees to, to how that works. I think Gillian Flynn's an interesting middle ground because she's has big adaptation dollars and juice mm-hmm. and she's written tv shows and you know gone girl is we're going to do that you and i will have someone else join us for a gone girl rewatch and book nerd yes. movie club at one time it's worth it's worth spending some time on whereas sarah grand because coming the other way who came from hollywood it sounds like i didn't know this i don't know much about sarah grand other than by name and i think i've read one of her books before but she came out of hollywood and her sauce was the sort of infantilization of the author in the in the mm-hmm. typical publishing process where you bring your baby chick to the to the whatever to the veterinarian and they do all the things and you're just like here take my tender bird and <laughs> i will just let it go and then the vets do all the stuff and they're like this is what we should do and here's how it's going to go and thank you very much for bringing your bird in but we don't need you can you please sit in the waiting room and we will see what happens to your bird and i think that is an interesting I think that's probably a true but also unfair characterization because not all authors, A, have Sarah Grant's experience. Not every not every author who's working on a book or trying to pump one out every three years, and since especially since most authors don't earn a living off their writing, they got to do other stuff. They don't want to be doing the marketing and working with uh, Baker and Taylor and making sure the copyright is filed in Finland and all that kind of stuff. Like It is hard mm-hmm. to get a book out into the world. On the other hand, if that's what you want to do, if you want control, you got to take a responsibility for all the nuts and bolts. And Grant is saying, there was no affordance for me to choose to do this, right? Because the publishing process has a mental model of how to assembly line build books yeah. on the whole. And it doesn't, it doesn't allow for someone who really wants to get their hands dirty to get involved. So I think it makes sense. I don't know. Will it? I guess the big question is, will the results be any different or will she just feel different about it? I have no, I have no yeah. sense of this. Do you think it would matter for someone like Sarah Grant to be like, yeah, I want to decide what my Facebook marketing budget is and what uh, audience I'm going to target? I Do think it's a terrible I, idea. <laughs> Why so? Well, I, do, I mean, it just has that kind of air of like, I'm Stephen King, therefore I don't need to be edited. Mm. You know what I mean? Like what does, what expertise in display advertising does having written a book give you none right. none like unless you right. have done that yourself or or run a campaign yourself i feel like an independently pub- like an author who is self-publishing would probably be better at this than sarah grand because they have experience doing all of that stuff the- themselves like mm. what does she know about cover design zero i mean who knows maybe she knows tons and tons and tons and i just yeah i'm not familiar enough with her but as a model of like give all of this creative and business control to the authors, I think it makes sense on paper. I understand why she would want it. In practice, I think it's terrible. There's a reason why these different departments and publishing houses exist. Yeah. And there's a reason why these jobs exist because the expertise in each part of getting a book to market matters. And when author, she's not the first author to like have a fit about, mm-hmm. I'm just going to do it myself or like they didn't listen to me or this isn't the direction I wanted to take it or whatever. Okay. Fine. Like I understand all of that and that's all justifiable, but to go off and make your own imprint because you think you can do better than people who have been doing this for years and have degrees in it and are experts. I don't know. I just fine. So go with God, you know, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's the hubris of any new endeavor, right? Which is that yeah. I can do something that other people aren't doing. And sometimes, well, sometimes it's boldness and sometimes it's hubris. And I guess we'll find out, right? We'll find out, what yeah. What did it say? Yeah, we'll find out. I think it's interesting to see, you know, Rebecca and I have long waited for the author of of Juice to go out on and strike it out on their own kind of like this. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to make my own house and I'm going to do all, and my brand alone my name, my backlist, whatever that I probably don't own the rights to, but what have you, mm-hmm. is going to be the locus around which I'm going to streamline, cut the fat, or, or just reimagine um, how these things work. I think it's interesting. I was reading a thing about this. I know this doesn't sound like me, but I'm interested in business. Jennifer Lopez's business empire. Mm-hmm. And the, she said some really smart things. I, I'm not surprised. She's a, she's a smart and savvy person. But the thing that was like the most business speak thing she says, like, I am the scarce asset. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Jennifer Lopez and there there isn't another Jennifer Lopez. So whatever her company is that's special lends you know leverages Jennifer Lopez. You need to be special enough, mm-hmm. right? You need to be special enough where there's extra value to unlock your specialness, your scarcity, that the publishing, a, a traditional publishing deal process either doesn't capitalize on at all or doesn't capitalize on well enough. And so on one hand, you have the Sarah Grands. On the other hand, you have like midlist author that no one knows their name at Knopf. And then in the middle, I think you have this Lena and Gillian thing, which is a little mm-hmm. bit of both, right? It's an independent publisher, but they're not doing all the work. Um, and w- there's a Goldilocks situation here. I think one thing, you know, it, it's as we've come up on our 10-year anniversary of Book Ride, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about what I've learned and what I know, what I haven't learned, uh, what I've been pig-headed about. And one of the things I think is probably the the naivety of a beginner is to to fail to realize that some system that you think is dumb or is stupid, it may be dumb and stupid, but that doesn't mean there aren't reasons there are the yeah. way that it is, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you may not like those reasons, which is totally fair, and you may want to get your hands dirty and fix them, but there is a certain arrogant naivete to say, well, if I walk into the room with a blank piece of paper... I'm not going to make all these same mistakes all these dummies have made, right? Uh, which, again, sometimes thing, change can happen and should happen and has been happening. But the level to which it's harder than one might think to walk into an existing system and think that it's arbitrary and all kind of like calcified moss on a stone that just needs to be stripped away to, to get to the gem underneath mm-hmm. – I don't think that's what we've seen, Amanda. I mean, I, I, does that sound familiar to you, or what would you add to that kind of general understanding of the publishing world? Um, I don't. I don't. I mean, who loves the publishing world as it is, right? You right. know, there it's five multi-billion-dollar multinational corporations for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and of course, there are small publishers who were doing interesting things. Why didn't you go to one of them? I don't know. Mm. Um, but. Uh, <sighs> Nobody, it's just, it's like Amazon, right? Nobody loves Amazon, but most people use Amazon. And nobody, I think, loves their contract with the, with Random House, but PRH is the biggest publisher in the world. And there's a, there's, there's a reason for that. There are probably a lot of reasons for that. And is the answer to, it sounds like she wants the best of both worlds. Like she wants the structure and support of traditional publishing and the access it gives you to bookstores but also the control that self-publishing gives a person. Mm -hmm. And I am very interested in how it goes. I think she needs to be a bigger name to make it actually work, but I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Just There's a little blurb link in the show notes at Publishers Weekly. Uh, The quote is, Frustration with the increasingly corporate culture of the new mega conglomerate publishing house and the desire to have more control over her own work, ensure it stays in print, and give other writers the same option for more creative and financial ownership of their work. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, M- maybe. Here, but here's here's the fa- the fascinating piece. the The name of the independent publisher called Dreamland. It co- Dreamland will publish trade editions, comma to be distributed by Ingram. By Ingram. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about a giant process. Yeah. Like you're subject just like everyone else to Ingram. You have to buy paper and print stuff in China. So there's a sort of a way like you're going to be subject to all the same market forces. And so what's going to be different? What is this special sauce? I'd love to know what people think the special sauce is. Maybe they think in terms of royalties, they give up too much to an Mm -hmm. FSG or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, I can recreate what they do with off the shelf tools and new technology and distribution and Ingram and whatever. And I'll, Maybe I'll give up some. Maybe I'll give up twenty percent of sales. But if I'm getting fifty percent more royalties, I'll come out ahead. Mm. Could work that way. I could see I something like that. I think it would like be more interesting sense. if it were her plus five other authors, you know, or, or of the same or bigger names. Like if a bunch of authors got together to make their own off-the-shelf kind of house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that would have a because when it's just you, then it just seems like an ego play or like a. <sighs> Flounce. Yeah, I mean, like additional two to four titles a year from other authors that aren't named. So maybe this is fishing expedition. She's gonna, she's gonna be her. She's gonna uh, use the serum on herself to see yeah. if it turns her into a super soldier, and maybe others will follow. Yeah. Um, but that is, it's one of the more extreme examples we've seen of an author mm-hmm. 
that's coming from traditional publishing towards self-publishing. Usually we've seen over time the other direction of someone who's try who has self-published and gets a, thrown a lifeline from a traditional publisher, yeah. you know, being grateful, right? Because they know how much it can be and there's different things that go along with it. But I think this this continues to evolve. I think how much on an ongoing basis are readers going to care about sub celebrities and semi-celebrities telling them what books they like. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how durable this is going to be. It could be the new normal. It it could be. I don't know. It would be very, very new in the world of publishing in America, especially. But these things come and go. For a while, the, the subscription book services like Book of the Month Club, when Native Sun came out um, in 1940, 1941, mm -hmm. Book of the Month Club had a half a million subscribers. So when mm -hmm. they picked Native Sun... It, that's why it's canon now. It there mattered. were a lot of yeah. books by black authors that happened before that, but they didn't get. But you know, their eyes were watching. God came out three years earlier, and Wright and Hurston had a had a, a rivalry slash hatred, and his got picked, and hers didn't, and that's why people knew Richard Wright for the next thirty years. And Alice Walker had to go into a graveyard in Florida with a weed whacker to rediscover Zora Neale Hurston. So these models do change over time, and then you know we've seen over time the preponder the preponderance the uh, preeminence of the review. Right, mm -hmm. the New York Times review at one point in time, a cover review in the New York Times Sunday book section could make a book. Yeah. At one time, an Oprah book club selection could make a book, and now L.A. Weather, which is the newest Reese pick, which I'm going to read, I'm really looking forward to it. Debuted this week at number thirteen and sold four thousand copies. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge marketing budget behind that. There's ads with us. I saw it on the end rack at my local grocery store for 40% off. That's not because of Reese. I did a podcast Reese. read for that. <laughs> yeah, right. So like, yeah. a, a, there's. I think there might be diminishing returns on this thing. A, after Reese has picked 40 books, after Oprah's picked 50 books, after Lena and Gillian and Sarah, and I'm trying to think of other authors that are doing stuff, like Phoebe Robinson, mm -hmm. after they've done 50 of these, after, after Steph Curry's 50th literary pick, are people still going to care? I don't know. I, I, I'm fascinated to see how this all plays out. It might just be because I'm a book person to begin with, but I'm far more interested in what Gillian Flynn is going to put out than I am in what Oprah selects or what Reese Witherspoon selects. Because yeah, And it was the same with Bourdain when he was alive. When Bourdain was going to be putting out food writing that spoke to his sensibility, I love his sensibility so much that I was very interested in that. I love mm -hmm. Gillian Flynn. And so if she's going to be putting out things that are weird and kind of edgy, which is what she said she's going to be doing, that I'm interested in that. You know, like it's just a giant yeah. blurb. An author publishing house is a giant blurb. <laughs> That's true. It's a great point. It, how how is it different in degree or kind than a really good blurb? I don't know. That's a it's wonderful not. question. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's the same thing. Yeah. And the durability of like... Do you do you can you think of a book off the top of your head that came out of Bourdain's imprint? They're like, yeah, I wouldn't have read that without Bourdain. Mm-mm. No. Yeah, see? I I, I yeah. did read one and I'm like, that was fine. It was fine. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I read it. Am I like, oh my God, but for Bourdain, what would have happened to my reading in this book? <laughs> to my reading life. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the other thing too, that as as people I've fallen subject to this as well, so I know from whence I speak, is thinking there are a bunch of books out there but if someone just other if someone else just picked them they would be bestsellers and they would be remarkably revolutionary books maybe there are some i think it was more true maybe 7 or 8 or even 10 years ago when for reasons that were racist and sexist and ableist and a whole bunch of other prejudices and, and still that's true it's less true than it was like what are the slush piles that gillian's picking off of that the person mm -hmm. who published her isn't picking off of. That's my question. She she got published. Yeah. Did she write? Would if she have written something different? I, I'm I'm so curious to see what are these undiscovered. What, what rocks are you looking under for these undiscovered gems that the people who do this all the time for a living and are incentivized to do a good job and sell copies aren't doing? Uh, yeah, the I idea that she the point she makes in the Times article about how she's looking to give a platform to people who write like her in kind of a weird and unexpected way when you're one of the best-selling authors in your yeah, genre. Right. It's like, I don't understand. <laughs> okay. Well, we saw that there was a, for a minute, that was a, a vein of ore to be mined of the yes. Gillian Finn lookalikes, right? And I think mm -hmm. we're still living in the Gone Girl shadow to some degree. I mean, 
Paula Hawkins, I think, has a career that she has because she wrote a book that got compared to Gone Girl and people liked it. I'm not saying that, that she's a fraud or anything, but like that was a thing that suddenly people wanted and it comes and goes. It, mm-hmm. it might come and go, but uh, very interested to see how these things happen as people try to see, always trying to, always trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, yeah. And there's many things that are difficult about the wheel, but it's also better than other ways of doing it. And that's what we found over time. All right. We're going to do another quick sponsor break. And then uh, Amanda is going to tell us about her, some some of your favorite books of the year, and then what you're looking at for the fall. While I have you on the hook, I get to put these screws <laughs> to you. Okay. All right. I think when Jen was on a couple of weeks ago, she also named She Who Became the Sun. So give me another oh, yeah. 20, 20 seconds of uh, reification of She Who Became the Sun. Uh, she Who Became the Sun is, uh, by Shelley Parker Chan is... It was blurbed as Mulan meets the Song of Achilles, which is an, a guaranteed way to get me to read something. I was going to say, was it say, and please, Amanda, please literally read this, Amanda, in the blurb? No, The weird thing about it is I heard nothing about this book until I saw it suggested by my library. Like my pub, I was in Libby. Wow. Yes. You. And it pop- yeah, right. Which if right. you've not, if you've not found your way to me with a book like this, you're Mark, I don't know, whatever. I got a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I- but it is the most hardcore, weird, metal, like punk rock, gender bent historical fiction novel that I have ever read in my life. It might be my favorite. It's it's probably my favorite book of the year. It will probably mm-hmm. no matter what I read after. I don't know what could possibly top it. It is so. It's just so punk rock. I am obsessed with it. I bought it after Jen mentioned it, so I was glad to see it here because that will remind me to keep uh, reading it. You have a nonfiction pitch, pick, which I don't think Jen mentioned any in the, in the form of cultish. Yeah. This is something that if it wasn't COVID and I was still audiobooking as hard as I am in normal times, I would have already listened to this. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to probably do this until I have more ear time to give it. Give me a, give me your cultish take. Well, she's got a podcast now. So cultish. Is of course. By, right. <laughs> it's by Amanda Montel, who is a linguist. And she is talking about the ways that language forms things that are kind of cult adjacent. So we're not talking about like Scientology or mm-hmm. you know, Nexium. She's talking about like soul cycle or evangelical churches or um, MLMs right CrossFit MLMs Mm -hmm. things like that that where people joke like gosh that's like a cult but it kind of actually literally is a cult because of the way that language is used in culty ways to create in groups and out groups um, and like a shared vernacular and all these kinds of things so for a linguist explaining how you're kind of like hesitation about soul cycle is rooted in reality was very um what's the word? it was affirming to me and she has a podcast now it's called sounds like a cult i listened to the tony robbins episode on my uh, flight home which i weird like i read a lot of business books and like self-help kind of stuff and have avoided tony robbins this entire yeah time. me too like, i've never and apparently he's a terrible person who's been me too a lot and it just hasn't touched him yet um but that was all news mm. to me there is an episode about peloton um, or no, there's an episode about SoulCycle, um, and MLMs, all those sorts of things. So if you're a, a culty per I feel like a lot of people, cults had a big moment in 2020. I don't know if it was because we were all home or what the thing was, but. Well, oh, when you're by Nexium, yourself in your house. Yeah. And Nexium you're like, was maybe is trial. a cult a bad idea? Maybe, if, <laughs> maybe is a cult better than this? Maybe. Yeah. I, I join anything to connect with other people. And they oh, were yeah, in Nexium, the news a lot. Right. Yeah, Nexium right. is in that's the news right. a lot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but if that's the thing you got into, as I did during lockdown, then it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, the, the opening book in a series, so I, if I ever get to this, it will be in 10,000 years because of O'Neill's Razor, because I won't uh-huh. read it till it's over, but talk to me about The Jasmine Throne. Oh, The Jasmine Throne is the first book in a new kind of high fantasy series from Tasha Siri. Um, and it is all based on the history and epic stories of India. Um, and it's about a, a princess who is being held captive by her terrible brother, who is a giant misogynist, and one of her maidservants, who has a secret background um, as a, a child priest in a uh, religion that was destroyed by the, the princess's father. So there's a lot of like political stuff. Um, it's super gay. 
and every person who matters in the book is a woman, which is so refreshing from a high mm-hmm. fantasy novel. It's very angry and Game of Thronesy in the in that there's a lot of like political machinations and priests and every kind of power structure that you can think of in a fantasy universe. Like they all seem to have kind of the same basic ones, right? There's the royalty, there's the yeah. the priests, there's the like hierarchy or the the, the knowledge workers or whatever. Um, I want like librarians. There's always like that character archetypes of power mm-hmm. and knowledge. The archetype, the people who hold the archetypal positions in this book are all women, um, and some of them are complicated. And everyone is morally very gray. Um, it's just great. It was totally engrossing, and ha- it's hard. It's brutal though. Like a lot of bad things happen to children, which I know is a deal breaker for a <sighs> Amanda, lot of readers. Come I know. on, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I don't. It's rough. But right. I hate that kind of thing. Like, it's very hard for me to get through bad things happening to kids. But I still uh, went through the whole. I still. So like, you mean because we share that at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot. Of, listen, a lot of people if do. You, if you if you're into that, please stop listening and, and go, <laughs> right. go go. But but there's there's a there's a scale to it. And you and yeah. I, I think, amongst our staff, have been more on the. If something bad is happening to kids, I really would like to know. So I'd rather, I could yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was. It got me. It had enough momentum and. Um, interest to keep me uh tied in through all of that so and something murdery but more lighthearted. dial a for aunties mm-hmm. uh, this had a bit of a moment for a while it felt yeah. like over the summer uh and it, it seems like people like this book yeah it came out in april it's a cozy mystery except not a mystery at all because Madeline, the main character murders her a blind date like in chapter one so you know exactly mm. who did it the mystery is how she's going to get away with it. And the cast is her, her mom, and her three aunts. They're immigrants um, from Indonesia. Uh, and they own a company together, like a wedding planning business together. Like one of them is the entertainment, one of them is the florist, etc. Uh, and when she kills this man, he, she calls her aunts instead of the cops for reasons that mm. are explained in the book. Mm. And then it's just, they have to pu- pull off this giant wedding that's going to, that's going to, you know, like cement their business as an important company in the space while also getting rid of a body. It's hilarious. Like, what would you do if you had to hide a body with your 70-year-old aunt? And then, but three of them. <laughs> Has this already been optioned by I Netflix for like so. a four-part miniseries? Because it seems like it would be great fun uh, as, a, as, a, as an adaptation as well. It's so fun. In April of this year, just as people were like, the vaccine was starting to get momentum, mm. people were starting to feel a little bit better. It was a great time for a book like this to hit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's because it's it's exuberant of being around other people and yeah. a little more uh, willfully lighthearted, even as it's a little bit macabre. Uh, yeah. Things you're looking forward to the fall. Um, things we've talked about for The Sentence, The mm-hmm. Airdrick coming out in November. I love you, but I've chosen darkness. R- Rebecca and I had this both on our long list, Claire V. Watkins mm-hmm. for 10-5. What's your previous Watkins experience? What, why is this one on your list? Um, I read her first book of short stories, The Battleborn. Um, yeah, it's been a I while, right? Loved, yeah. yeah. But I haven't mm-hmm. read anything of her since. Like, I didn't read Gold Fame Citrus, um, but I loved Battleborn. She's got a really kind of dark and twisty yes. sensibility. And I love you, but I've chosen Darkness is about motherhood. And I will read literally anything that is about motherhood from a dark and twisty perspective. I was going like to say, anything. about motherhood with this title is also, please, um, it's from the Amanda Nelson books. It's just, uh, it's got a print. cactus on fire on the cover. Like, just send it to me. I would, I'll pre-order it. I love it. I'm here for this. This is exciting. The way that I read new releases um, or like upcoming books is that I don't read yep, the blurbs. Same. Like if I try to completely avoid knowing what a book is about. So I actually have no idea what the sentence is about. I just know that it's Eric, so I will read it. Um, and aside from knowing that the Watkins is about motherhood, I don't know anything else. And I like to keep it that way. So... Speaking of things, I kind of wish I didn't know the blurb of the ma- of It's not The oh, Matrix. Matrix. It's Matrix yeah. by Lauren Groff. Do you know the yeah. blurb of this? Because if not, I won't... We don't I know to talk that about that. Like set in Eleanor of Aquitaine time. Yes, but that's it, and that's all I know. Um, You're not into out. that. <laughs> well, no, I am. I just, it's not what I was expecting from Groff, which is fine. Yeah. But also, the the name of Matrix is so like neo punk, future oriented yeah. at this point because the Matrix. I mean, obviously, and right. it doesn't have to be. But there's a there's a literary dissonance in my mind and i bought it on hard i bought it in hardcover which is a little unusual for me i pre-ordered it because i wanted to have the physical copy so that i would kind of have to read it because mm. i knew that if i didn't anchor myself on it i would drift away from it because i'm like eh. but i want I, I love groff i, I want to read yeah. everything groff writes does that make sense so i'm kind of like 
it's kind of leaving my briefcase in front of the door so I don't forget it when I walk out the door, uh, make it hard for me to make a mistake here. Luckily, it's not super long. When I first, when this first came out, for some reason, I thought it was like 500 pages. I think I messed it up in my mind with the new Ozeki, which came out this week or is coming out next week, which is super long. So that was a, a bit of a relief. One one nice thing about seeing things in print, even though I do mostly ebooks and audiobooks anymore, is I can avoid or be enticed by the length of a book, length, which is yeah. it's for people who know and listen to the show. You know, yeah, this is very simple math, but I can read two, three hundred books for the price of one six hundred book, essentially. Yeah. So, and I like to read more different titles and get exposed to different things. So, this is like two fifty. So, I could probably burn through this in a good afternoon and a half. So, I'm looking. She's an auto buy for, sure. for me too. So, I'm yeah. excited about it. Yeah, um, yeah. I interviewed her for recommended our but you pour mm-hmm. one out for our og podcast um and she's just like charming and brilliant and a little sly and kind of um edgy i keep saying that but like she's edgy yeah. she's a little bit angry um she's great i'm so excited about it it's funny that you and i have lauren i don't have lauren Groff stories but when fates and furies came out i did an interview as part of a couple with us, a couple other people for the national NPR best books of the year. And I talked about fates and furies. So we both have extra special sauce on our Groff corner. (laughs) Um, And I'm glad to be surprised. I'd have to say if you'd given me like a list of 10 blurbs to pick, probably the Eleanor Vaquitaine one would be the last one I would have expected, which is Mm -hmm. cool. And even more further afield, you and I and Rebecca were, you know, talking this week about, one of the many things that makes Whitehead special, Colson Whitehead, Harlem Shuffle is, is out, and I'm in the middle of reading that right now, is that, you you know, like like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. I think mm-hmm. this is more further afield than anything I've seen Whitehead do to this point. Like, I'm trying to that think of what lot. the Whitehead <laughs> version of this, it would be like maybe, I don't know, some book set in 14th century Africa. Like, I'm trying to think of what I'd be like, whoa, Whitehead, you're really going for it. And this is how I'm feeling there, which should be exciting. This is the kind of thing I'm like, this is you getting older, Jeff. And a, <laughs> 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I'd be like, this is awesome. She's really going for it. Now I'm like, this is the graph I want to do. I'm so set in my ways. So I mean, I'm yeah, that. angry nuns. I feel like that's pretty up her alley. <sighs> I'm assuming they're angry. Sure. I don't actually know because, like I said, I don't read a lot of information about a book before it comes out. Um I get, well, she did do that. Arcadia was historical fiction, but it was only the, it was still the modern times. So yeah, and it was debut, right? So I didn't know, I didn't have a mental model of what to expect. So it really could, if this is her first book, I wouldn't be like this out of character because there's there is no character. I guess right. the only thing more out of, of the field than than wild nuns would have been placid nuns, a very quiet <laughs> book by Lauren Gloff about just the no, daily life of yeah. nuns uh, where nothing that. happens. I don't you get to the way. epilogue and it'd be like BTW, they're all serial killers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. This was all a sim- in the head of a pig or something like that. Right, yeah. I don't, something else weird like that. Uh, and then the sentence by Erdrich. So mm-hmm. maybe dwell for a minute on this, because we were also having the conversation, Rebecca and I, I think the first time you heard us say, oh no, we've talked about this before, Whitehead is our number one draft pick for greatest living American author. Yeah. But then both of you, both you and I sort of said, Erdrich is Erdrich. interesting. It's in the next rank for sure. The sentence also feels a little bit like a more playful version of Erdrich than we've seen before. Yeah, it's a murder, kind of a mystery, ghost story in a bookstore. Bookstore, yeah. I'm very excited to see how, how this plays out. Is that a auto is Erdrich an auto buy for you or do you take it piece by piece? Erdrich is too dark to be yeah. an auto buy for me. Like uh, it's a lot of bad things happening to all kinds of people, not just children. Mm-hmm. Um but I will sit on a book of hers for a while if it sounds like it's too tragic. Um, yeah. And then that's wait a, for some reviews. I, I didn't realize I do that same thing, but that's kind of where I am too. I, yeah. I didn't realize that was the, the heuristic I'm running, but it can't be too dark. Um, not <laughs> all of the children, it. indigenous children can get murdered for me to really exactly. Like yeah. That's okay I need to for like, me to whoo! spend some time with. I will read any of her nonfiction. She's written some memoir. She wrote The Blue Jay, I think it's called. Um, mm-hmm. The memoir of her first year of motherhood, which was so good. I read that when my kids were like three or four. Um, no, I think I was in the middle of my divorce when I read that. It was just like super helpful. She, The only reason that I don't put her, it, pick her instead of Whitehead is that she's not as varied in yes. genre as yep. Whitehead. Like Whitehead can do any song and dance. That's the trump card he has right now yeah. over almost anybody um, else. But if he wasn't sure. doing that or if he didn't exist, it would be her to me. It'd be neck and neck at least. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with that. Um, speaking of best books, best writers, the long list for the 2021 
21 National Book Awards came out last week. Mm. I'm not going to spend too much time on the whole list because most of the time here on the show, we're talking about fiction and the narrative nonfiction, which typically is sort of adjacent to their nonfiction list. Anyway, I wanted to own that Rebecca and I are, I mean, these books, a a lot of these books were on our long list for our drafts throughout the year, but I think only of the 10 in the long list, I think the only one we actually picked I think I picked Intimacies by Katie mm-hmm. Kitamura for the summer list. The other ones are Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, Lauren Groff Matrix, mm-hmm. Abundance by Jacob um, Guanzon, which I have not heard of, mm-hmm. Zori by Laird Hunt, which I had not heard of, The Love Song of W.B. Du Bois by Honoré Fanon Jeffers, which we talked about as an Oprah pick last week, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr., which is a book I really like to debut Black author came out at the same time as another book called Black Buck, and then another one called The Liar's Dictionary. They were all debuts I read in the spring. I all like them a lot, and I haven't got a chance nice. to talk about any of them. They're not really related, except they were three debut author books I read right in a row and really liked it. So I'm glad to see it here. Intimacies, as I said, uh, the Souvenir Museum by Elizabeth McCracken. Who love it? I mean, McCracken. We don't give her much shine here. She doesn't usually make it onto our long list, but she's like. If you know, you know, kind of yeah. a writer, she's right? A, it, she's a great Shirley Jackson read-alike, if that's yeah. what you're into. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not as, like, creepy, but she's doing mm-hmm. weird. There's a lot of weird stuff going on with McCracken a lot of the time. Yeah, and, and as a as a example, this is, like, a balloon dog, uh, <laughs> balloon animal dog on the cover. Is this short stories you know? I don't know it anything is. about yeah, it is, which stories. is, I think, McCracken's... Uh, that's the she wants to hit curveballs, and that's yeah. the best way to put a curveball there. Hell of a book by Jason Mott. Interesting career Jason Mott has had. His debut, I remember, got a big, huge banner at BEA like a million years ago called The Returned, which is like a YA sort of dystopian thing. Mm. He's done a little more YA. He's done some contemporary. And this book was completely not on my radar, and I have no idea what it's about, but I'm going to be looking at this very soon because he's an interesting guy who doesn't fall neatly into a category, which is maybe one reason... I haven't been on, hasn't been on my radar. And then Bewilderment by Richard Powers. Richard Powers now consistently stamping out these sort of like science-y adjacent literary novels that a lot of people really like. Um, my dad really likes these books. <laughs> I've liked some of them. Um, I heard this one is especially good. So I think I will be checking this out. But Richard Powers, I think, has a little bit of a brand now. I think after this, the last couple... He's got a niche, and people who know Richard Powers and like the last book are looking for the next ones. So I guess notable, of course, the one I'm going to say is notable omissions or other ways. I, I don't get bent out of shape about this anymore. There's no book on here that I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe How I dare that you? book on yeah. here. How <laughs> dare you? You're surprised not to see you know, the Harlem shuffles of the world or the, is the Erdrick not out. I think it's so weird, though, um, that the long list for the year comes out in September. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, a, I have I have something I need to put toward you here. We need we need to adjudicate when awards for a year come out. Like I I think as much as I don't really care for the Academy Awards, their timing makes sense to me. Your books that come out in the previous calendar year are eligible, and the award series in fe- in February, and that's it. You, you two it was only two months ago. This books books could be on this list that haven't even come out yet. I don't think Cloud Cuckoo Land's even out yet. Like, what is uh, this? I don't I don't understand. I, this makes well, me crazy. The, mm, I get that from a reader perspective, but these judges have read these books. Like the people who are making these decisions have these galleys already. They don't have to be out. You know what I mean? Like, the, we're no. Far I understand. I understand that. I understand that. But like, one of the fun pieces for me, at least of uh the academy awards especially is what books get recognized or books what movies get recognized what i haven't seen what you know what might tip me over to read something versus something else that i missed mm-hmm. and this i'm like if i can't get the book yet other okay. readers can't get the- what's the point of putting this list out now pre-orders i don't understand i think that pre-orders books, people are not pre-order- for us. Uh-huh. They're not for us. The National Book Award is not for readers. Who is it for, though? Who is publishers. it for? Then? It's for publishers. For pub- so they can have a sticker on the book for yes. book buying season. That's probably yes. what you're. You're probably right about that. Yes. But but Amanda, I don't like that rationale. I know. That I know makes you. Makes total sense. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the same way that uh, I think, as much as I dislike the Nobel Prize and think, yeah. especially these days, that might be the one of the few awards that are for readers because. If somebody mm-hmm. like a, you get a Nobel Prize, probably.
probably because you've already sold over your lifetime. You're not trying book. to make your rent if you're you winning a Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah, and like if somebody buys your next book, is it going to make a difference if you're Toni Morrison? Probably no. No, you know, Or not. even Bob Dylan, that weird... Whatever, we don't have to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be the only one that is not really publisher focused i don't know i'd have to think about that for a bit yeah i guess if zori by laird hunt which again maybe this is a, there's a huge following internationally or something for laird hunt if that book gets the national book award that's a make career that stickers yeah. on that book forever. forever it's on the paperback things people like me when i'm 17 and i'm trying to figure out what books to read i'm looking at lists of winners and i read this just like people still buy tinkers by paul harding which is a fine book but because it won the National Book Award, it still sells a couple hundred copies a month, which it would not be doing if it did not win the National Book Award. So yeah. I don't know. I, I wish there was more of an award season where the National Book Award comes out, Literary Cr- Critic Circle comes out, Ind- Independent Book Awards comes out, the Penn Faulkner. So we have a real celebration season where there could be juice behind some some stuff. On the other hand, there are so many more books than movies that I don't think there'd be attention that like coalesce around, say, like No Man Land last mm-hmm. year where – you went rack up a couple of wins. Very, I don't know the last time if if it's ever happened that something won the NBA for fiction and the Pulitzer for fiction and the Penn Award. I just don't mm. know, or and the NBCC. Um, so you don't get to rack up those kinds of awards all at once. Which I guess goes back to what I said at the beginning is that reading culture is so spread out that you don't have that kind of. Th- I guess I, I'm of two minds. From a reader's pers- from my perspective, I like there's a whole bunch of interesting crap to read. From a sort of news shining a light that people like me may may be attracted to, the light is so diffuse that it's hard to even single anything out uh, over time. Okay, any other thoughts about the na- any any omissions on your on your uh, do- docket that you were wondering, curious about? We're past the point of saying how can this thing not be on there, but yeah, anything you were no, surprised not to I see? No, I don't pay. I just don't pay enough attention to awards, honestly, anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read I. Make a go. Some years it's a bigger go than others at reading the long list of the women's prize every yeah. year. Um, this year it was not a big go. <laughs> it was a very no. small go. Um, but that's the only one that I am like, I follow them on Instagram. I'm waiting for that long list to come out. Mm-hmm. I forget that the National Book Award exists along with yeah. most of the other ones. So, um, doesn't like I've said before, I think in a remixed episode I did with Trish, we were trying to come up with an Academy Awards for books. Like if we really tried to make a splash like that, mm-hmm. then the first thing that would need to happen is we need a catchy, um, a catchy nickname for the NBAs because the Grammys, the the, mm-hmm. the Oscars, the, the Tonys, yeah. Emmys, they all have this like little diminutive. Uh, there is the the NBA. Also, it has namespace pollution from the <laughs> it's already most something popular else. <laughs> sport in the world, or that's not soccer in the world. Right. Um, also, weirdly, a little cl- too close to the NRA for my taste, I have Ooh. to say. The National Something mm-hmm. of America is a little bit rah-rah for me uh, at this point. So anyway, if anyone has a great idea. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that sounds a little bit like you're, you're, uh, you're wagering on the ponies a little <laughs> you're bit. You're about to, to commit a, a crime. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So anyway, I'm not sure what to go uh, with there, but I'm still, I'm dissatisfied. And I feel like this is talk about, um, beginner's naivete. Why aren't book awards different? Well, I'm sure they all have <laughs> reasons for doing the way, the way they're doing them there. I dropped this last one in because you are here today. I, Yay! this is not a story that Rebecca and I would probably pick up on herself. <laughs> Amanda is a giant American history nerd. I think you have a timeshare in Monticello. Is that you? You have a timeshare <laughs> over there, right? Yeah. I just live yeah. in the basement now. Just in yeah. the basement. Um, and yelling so, about slavery to everyone who passes. <laughs> yeah. All these people also own slaves. You know that, don't you? Um, mm-hmm. A rare first edition of the U.S. Constitution is going to auction. And this is one of those things I never thought of the U.S. Constitution as having a first edition print run, but apparently mm. it did. Mm-hmm. In my mind, this is a, a couple of, of – there's maybe a couple of uh, quill and ink copies, and that's it. <laughs> but apparently there was that, but then there was a limited edition printed – um, and I don't really know how one acquired one of those. Were they for the public? Were they to take back to like the Vermont State House to make sure everyone knew <laughs> what they were doing or how things were going? Yes. At any rate, is that what they were? Yes, they were printed to to go back to be read publicly, yeah. like in the square. So that is where they came from. They were more like government documents. It's like yeah. getting a your four hundred one or not your your uh, social security benefit statement or something in the mail. Else yeah, like that, in the mail. <laughs> Um, but apparently there's only about a dozen of these around um, from this first printing. And this is the last one not already 
in institutional possession. Mm-hmm. And the expected price, if this was if this were Rebecca, I would have made her play the guessing game and um, <laughs> embarrassed her as a way of hiding my own embarrassment. Now, I would have guessed, I think, that this is probably one of the most expensive documents ever to go to auction. You know, it's mm-hmm. up there with uh, Shakespeare fourth first folios, folio. yeah. um, you know, Da Vinci's notebooks you know, famously have gotten sold off over time. I guess you're looking at copies of the Magna Carta mm-hmm. uh, might be in there. And then, of course, the Declaration of Independence. After that, I feel like it's a pretty short list. I don't know if I'm missing anything. Uh, Gutenberg Bibles, I guess, would be in there as well. Mm-hmm. And maybe some illuminated manuscripts. Uh, the Book of the Kells, I guess, is something like that ever came to market. But in terms of something that's actually printed that's not a 5,000 billion years old, this is up there. In 1988, the same copy traded hands for $168,000. I cannot believe that. <laughs> which turns out was a pretty good buy. It was. Because now they're expecting it to go for a cool $20 million oh American God. dollars. It's like if you had a house that you bought on Central Park in 1902 and yep. you just kept it this whole time. <laughs> I know. We have friends who bought a townhouse in Greenwich Village in the 1970s oh, when things were pretty rough there, and they've done very well. I Not bet. as well as buying this for $168,000. That's now $20 million. What else is there to say? I mean, the the, the number is quite shocking. On the other hand, uh, I, trying to buy a new Kia Sorento these days feels like I'm being held up at, at knife point. So yeah. I guess I'm not surprised that there's an asset bubble for this. Um, it's in the price range of, I guess, works of art like a Picasso. A big Picasso coming up sells for more than this because there's mm-hmm. only one of those kinds of things. Um, and frankly, they're better wall art than the U.S. Constitution, I think. They just look more spectacular. They're but in terms of printed material, this ha- this is up. This is it. This, we're, we're in the pinnacle here. Yeah. And then, well, there I think there are more interesting but less valuable items that are in the collection as well. That This, like, yeah. Jude's collection. Like, he has a copy of the Articles of the Confederation, which is bananas. That's very strange. <laughs> and an official, like, one of the printings of the Stamp Act there's a copy of the Constitution that's signed by Millard Fillmore. That's <laughs> so interesting. Which, like, I would rather have that one, I think, than the first edition. I mean, the first edition is more historically important, but Millard Fillmore is such a weird flex. Like, why? That's the hipster sign pick, it? right? To have right? the Millard yes, Fillmore, yes, have the, Mil- the Franklin Pierce signed edition of the Constitution. Were you even in office enough to read it? Probably not. But that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was going to ask you if you got to have one document from American history. Ooh. And you could snap your fingers. The Emancipation Proclamation. It's pretty good. Yeah. Probably because I don't, I, I wonder how many of those are floating around. Probably they printed up a bunch of them to send off to Texas that they didn't yeah, to read Texas, or listen to. For, yeah. But I wonder how many of those there are, there are hanging around. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. I hadn't thought about them. I hadn't thought about stuff like, I was thinking there's probably stuff like, you know, Lincoln's handwritten Gettysburg address, but that's different. Mm-hmm. This is actually a printed thing. I gotta say, Shakespeare first folio would be pretty dope if I'm picking from be. anything. In, Do you mean Francis Bacon's first folio? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't at me, <laughs> Amanda. We're having such a nice time here. <laughs> I'm not uh, a Shakespeare conspiracy theorist. Please don't yeah. come find me on Instagram. <laughs> uh, Sotheby says this is rarer than the first printing of the Declaration of Independence. I don't know mm. why that would be. I guess maybe there was more of a maybe more of a rally in the street of get your copy of the Declaration of Independence boys we're going to war here um, Mm -hmm. that might have made that more lucrative to just print a whole bunch more of them like you're selling those to individuals where I don't think people were maybe like hey uh, Thomas Paine do you have a copy of the new constitution uh, rolling around I don't know I guess it does it does seem a little bit more boring like the Declaration of Independence no matter who you are that's right the Constitution is like, so we have a federal financial system now. I kind of don't super care about that if I'm a farmer, you know, on subsistence. Uh, so, yeah, I can see how mm-hmm. that would be. It's like the old saying, you, you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. The Declaration yeah. is the poetry and the Constitution is the prose. It's the prose, 100%. Uh, so it's a little, bit, a little bit different. But very cool nonetheless. I, I don't know if I would have... I'm trying to think if I had not, I should have done this when I saw the headline, like write down quickly a guess to see how calibrated or were. I mean, I certainly would have guessed five plus. I don't know that I've gotten to 20 um, with not, not, not knowing how many there are. Um, also, I really want 
a, I really want an American Indiana Jones. I don't. I'm tired of the National Treasure stuff, the Da Vinci stuff. I want Indiana Jones nine to steal this out of private hands and say yeah. this should be in a museum. I really want something like this to, to happen. I don't know why Indiana yeah, Jones has to be go my last to. Point. Yeah. Was that this is? Um, I don't like that they're selling it. I assume that they're expecting some institutional bids, but it doesn't sound like right. they're trying to position it that way. So. This is, you know, just the idea of this ending up in like Elon Musk's tiny I was, home. I was gonna, I was gonna say, if Peter Thiel ends up <laughs> oh. with this and takes it to his bomb shelter in New Zealand, I'm going to be very upset. I'm gonna vomit in my mouth. Yeah, a it's bit. not gonna yeah. be great. Though there are ten others, and if you like the U.S. so much, you wouldn't be building a apocalypse bunker in uh, New Zealand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. uh, all right, Amanda, thank you so much uh, for joining me this week. You can check out all the stories we talked about bookwrite.com slash listen. I'll include a list of the books Amanda had on her radar for the fall, but also her favorite picks of the year so far. You can also find a link there to the fall preview draft at bookwrite.com slash fall draft, but also a link there in the show notes. You can email us podcast at bookwriot.com. I don't think we had any, uh, I don't think we had any real listener open-ended questions. I guess if, if I'm missing a, a publisher or excuse me, an, an author that struck out on their own, to make their own publishing house. I'd like to hear about that. And I'm not really looking mm-hmm. for self-publishers. I know that's a very lucrative and amazing thing, mm-hmm. um, especially in romance and genre. It's the it's the really competing with the mainstream imprint kind of stuff that I'm I'm interested in now. Like that the kind of person that would be published by him Crown mm-hmm. or FSG or Hachette. Um like the Sarah Grands of the world, like the Gillian Flynn's of the world. Has anyone really done that uh, in a way that has been durable over time? If you know one or one that's failed, I'd also like to talk about that. Podcast at bookwrite.com. Amanda, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. 